Section 43 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland. Translated by Gilbert Canaan. Revolt 1, Part 7. That experience was short. Christophe lost his illusions about Judith as quickly as he had found them. It is only just to say that Judith did nothing to preserve them. As soon as a woman of that stamp has judged a man, she is done with him. He ceases to exist for her. She will not see him again. And she no more hesitates to reveal her soul to him, with calm impudence, than to appear naked before her dog, her cat, or any other domestic animal. Christophe saw Judith's egoism and coldness, and the mediocrity of her character. He had not had time to be absolutely caught but he had been enough caught to make him suffer and to bring him to a sort of fever. He did not so much love Judith as what she might have been, what she ought to have been. Her fine eyes exercised a melancholy fascination over him. He could not forget them. Although he knew now the drab soul that slumbered in their depths, he went on seeing them as he wished to see them, as he had first seen them. It was one of those loveless hallucinations of love which take up so much of the hearts of artists when they are not entirely absorbed by their work. A passing face is enough to create it. They see in it all the beauty that is in it, unknown to its indifferent possessor, and they love it the more for its indifference. They love it as a beautiful thing that must die without any man having known its worth, or that it even had life. Perhaps he was deceiving himself, and Judith Mannheim could not have been anything more than she was. But for a moment Christophe had believed in her, and her charm endured. He could not judge her impartially. All her beauty seemed to him to be hers, to be herself. All that was vulgar in her he cast back upon her twofold race, Jew and German, and perhaps he was more indignant with the German than with the Jew, for it had made him suffer more. As he did not yet know any other nation, the German spirit was for him a sort of scapegoat. He put upon it all the sins of the world. That Judith had deceived him was a reason the more for combating it. He could not forgive it for having crushed the life out of such a soul. Such was his first encounter with Israel. He had hoped much from it. He had hoped to find in that strong race living apart from the rest an ally for his fight. He lost that hope. With the flexibility of his passionate intuition, which made him leap from one extreme to another, he persuaded himself that the Jewish race was much weaker than it was said to be, and much more open, much too open, to outside influence. It had all its own weaknesses, augmented by those of the rest of the world picked up on its way. It was not in them that he could find assistance in working the lever of his art. Rather, he was in danger of being swallowed with them in the sands of the desert. Having seen the danger, and not feeling sure enough of himself to brave it, he suddenly gave up going to the Mannheims. He was invited several times and begged to be excused without giving any reason. As up till then he had shown an excessive eagerness to accept such a sudden change was remarked. It was attributed to his originality, but the Mannheims had no doubt that the fair Judith had something to do with it. 
Lothar and Franz joked about it at dinner. Judith shrugged her shoulders and said it was a fine conquest, and she asked her brother frigidly not to make such a fuss about it, but she left no stone unturned in her effort to bring Christophe back. She wrote to him for some musical information which no one else could supply, and at the end of her letter she made a friendly allusion to the rarity of his visits and the pleasure it would give them to see him. Christophe replied, giving the desired information, said that he was very busy and did not go. They met sometimes at the theatre. Christophe obstinately looked away from the Mannheim's box, and he would pretend not to see Judith, who held herself in readiness to give him her most charming smile. She did not persist. As she did not count on him for anything, she was annoyed that the little artist should let her do all the labor of their friendship, and pure waste at that. If he wanted to come, he would. If not, oh well, they could do without him. They did without him, and his absence left no very great gap in the Mannheim's evenings. But in spite of herself, Judith was really annoyed with Christoph. It seemed natural enough not to bother about him when he was there, and she could allow him to show his displeasure at being neglected. But that his displeasure should go so far as to break off their relationship altogether seemed to her to show a stupid pride and a heart more egoistic than in love. Judith could not tolerate her own faults in others. She followed the more attentively everything that Christophe did and wrote. Without seeming to do so, she would lead her brother to the subject of Christophe, she would make him tell her of his intercourse with him, and she would punctuate the narrative with clever ironic comment, which never let any ridiculous feature escape and gradually destroyed Franz's enthusiasm without his knowing it. At first all went well with the review. Christoph had not yet perceived the mediocrity of his colleagues, and since he was one of them they hailed him as a genius. Mannheim, who had discovered him, went everywhere repeating that Christoph was an admirable critic, though he had never read anything he had written that he had mistaken his vocation, and that he, Mannheim, had revealed it to him. They advertised his articles in mysterious terms, which roused curiosity, and his first effort was in fact like a stone falling into a duck-pond in the atony of the little town. It was called Too Much Music. Too much music, too much drinking, too much eating, wrote Christophe. Eating, drinking, hearing, without hunger, thirst, or need, from sheer habitual gourmandizing, living like Strasbourg geese. These people are sick from a diseased appetite. It matters little what you give them. Tristram or the trompeter von Sakinen, Beethoven or Mascagni, a fugue or a two-step, Adam, Bach, Puccini, Mozart, or Marschner. They do not know what they are eating. The great thing is to eat. They find no pleasure in it. Look at them at a concert. Talk of German gaiety. These people do not know what gaiety means. They are always gay. Their gaiety, like their sorrow, drops like rain. Their joy is dust. There is neither life nor force in it. They would stay for hours, smilingly and vaguely drinking in sounds, sounds, sounds. They think of nothing. They feel nothing. They are sponges true joy or true sorrow strength is not drawn out over hours like beer from a cask they take you by the throat and have you down 
After they are gone, there is no desire left in a man to drink in anything. He is full. Too much music. You are slaying each other and it. If you choose to murder each other, that is your affair. I can't help it. But where music is concerned, hands off. I will not suffer you to debase the loveliness of the world by heaping up in the same basket things holy and things shameful, by giving, as you do at present, the prelude to Parsifal between a fantasia on the daughter of the regiment and a saxophone quartet, or an adagio of Beethoven between a cakewalk and the rubbish of Leon Cavallo. You boast of being a musical people. You pretend to love music. What sort of music do you love? good or bad? You applaud both equally. Well then, choose. What exactly do you want? You do not know yourselves. You do not want to know. You are too fearful of taking sides and compromising yourselves. To the devil with your prudence. You are above party, do you say? Above? You mean below. And he quoted the lines of old Gottfried Keller, the rude citizen of Zurich one of the German writers who was most dear to him by reason of his vigorous loyalty and his keen savor of the soil. Wer uber den Parlein sich wint mit stolzen Minen, der steht zu meist vielmehr betrachtlich unter ihnen. He who proudly preens himself on being above parties is rather immeasurably beneath them. Have courage and be true, he went on, have courage and be ugly. If you like bad music, then say so frankly. Show yourselves. See yourselves as you are. Rid your souls of the loathsome burden of all your compromise and equivocation. Wash it in pure water. How long is it since you have seen yourselves in a mirror? I will show you yourselves. Composers, virtuosi, conductors, singers, and you, dear public. You shall for once know yourselves be what you like, but for any sake be true, be true even though art and artists, and I myself, have to suffer for it. If art and truth cannot live together, then let art disappear. Truth is life, lies are death. Naturally, this youthful wild outburst, which was all of a piece, and in very bad taste, produced an outcry. And yet, as everybody was attacked and nobody in particular, its pertinency was not recognized. Everyone is, or believes himself to be, or says that he is, the best friend of truth. There was, therefore, no danger of the conclusions of the article being attacked. Only people were shocked by its general tone. Everybody agreed that it was hardly proper, especially from an artist in a semi-official position. A few musicians began to be uneasy and protested bitterly. They saw that Christophe would not stop at that. Others thought themselves more clever and congratulated Christophe on his courage. They were no less uneasy about his next articles. Both tactics produced the same result. Christophe had plunged, nothing could stop him, and as he had promised, everybody was passed in survey, composers and interpreters alike. The first victims were the Koppelmeisters. Christophe did not confine himself to general remarks on the art of conducting an orchestra. He mentioned his colleagues of his own town and the neighboring towns by name. Or, if he did not name them, his illusions were so transparent that nobody could be mistaken. Everybody recognized the apathetic conductor of the court, Alois von Werner, 
a cautious old man, laden with honors, who was afraid of everything, dodged everything, was too timid to make a remark to his musicians, and meekly followed whatever they chose to do, who never risked anything on his program that had not been consecrated by twenty years of success, or at least guaranteed by the official stamp of some academic dignity. Christophe ironically applauded his boldness. He congratulated him on having discovered Gell, Dvorak, or Tchaikovsky. He waxed enthusiastic over his unfailing correctness, his metronomic equality, the always fine noisette, finely shaded, playing of his orchestra. He proposed to orchestrate the École de la Velocité of Czerny for his next concert, and implored him not to try himself so much, not to give rein to his passions, to look after his precious health. Or he cried out indignantly upon the way in which he had conducted the Eroica of Beethoven. A cannon! A cannon! Mow me down, these people! But have you then no idea of the conflict, the fight between human stupidity and human ferocity, and the strength which tramples them underfoot with a glad shout of laughter? How could you know it? It is you against whom it fights. You expend all the heroism that is in you in listening or in playing the Eroica of Beethoven without a yawn, for it bores you, confess that it bores you to death, or in risking a draught as you stand with bare head and bowed back to let some serene highness pass. He could not be sarcastic enough about the pontiffs of the conservatories who interpreted the great men of the past as classics. Classical, that word expresses everything, free passion, arranged and expurgated for the use of schools. Life, that vast plain swept by the winds, enclosed within the four walls of a school playground, the fierce, proud beat of a heart in anguish, reduced to the tic-tacs of a fortune pendulum, which goes its jolly way, hobbling and imperturbably leaning on the crutch of time. To enjoy the ocean you need to put it in a bowl with goldfish, you only understand life when you have killed it. If he was not kind to the bird-stuffers, as he called them, he was even less kind to the ringmen of the orchestra, the illustrious Kappelmeisters who toured the country to show off their flourishes and their dainty hands, those who exercised their virtuosity at the expense of the masters, tried hard to make the most familiar works unrecognizable, and turned somersaults through the hoop of the symphony in C minor. He made them appear as old coquettes, prima donnas of the orchestra, gypsies, and rope dancers. The virtuosi naturally provided him with splendid material. He declared himself incompetent when he had to criticize their conjuring performances. He said that such mechanical exercises belonged to the school of arts and crafts, and that not musical criticism but charts registering the duration and number of the notes and the energy expended could decide the merit of such labors. Sometimes he would set at naught some famous piano virtuoso who during a two-hours concert had surmounted the formidable difficulties with a smile on his lips and his hair hanging down into his eyes, of executing a childish andante of Mozart. He did not ignore the pleasure of overcoming difficulties. He had tasted it himself. It was one of the joys of life to him. But only to see the most material aspect of it, and to reduce all the heroism of art to that, seemed to him grotesque and degrading. He could not forgive the lions or panthers of the piano. 
but he was not very indulgent either towards the town pedants, famous in Germany, who, while they are rightly anxious not to alter the text of the masters, carefully suppress every flight of thought, and, like E. Dalbert and H. von Bülow, seem to be giving a lesson in diction when they are rendering a passionate sonata. The singers had their turn. Christophe was full to the brim of things to say about their barbarous heaviness and their provincial affectations. It was not only because of his recent misadventures with the enraged lady, but because of all the torture he had suffered during so many performances. It was difficult to know which had suffered most, ears or eyes, and Christophe had not enough standards of comparison to be able to have any idea of the ugliness of the setting, the hideous costumes, the screaming colors. He was only shocked by the vulgarity of the people, their gestures and attitudes, their unnatural playing, the inability of the actors to take on other souls than their own, and by the stupefying indifference with which they passed from one role to another, provided they were written more or less in the same register. Matrons of opulent flesh, hardy and buxom, appeared alternately as Isolde and Carmen. Amfortas played Figaro. But what most offended Christophe was the ugliness of this singing, especially in the classical works in which the beauty of melody is essential. No one in Germany could sing the perfect music of the eighteenth century. No one would take the trouble. The clear, pure style of Gluck and Mozart, which, like that of Goethe, seems to be bathed in the light of Italy, the style which begins to change and to become vibrant and dazzling with Weber the style ridiculed by the ponderous caricatures of the author of crociato had been killed by the triumph of wagner the wild flight of the valkyries with their strident cries had passed over the grecian sky the heavy clouds of odin dimmed the light no one now thought of singing music they sang poems ugliness and carelessness of detail even false notes were let pass under pretext that only the whole only the thought behind it mattered thought let us talk of that as if you understood it but whether or no you do understand it i pray you respect the form that thought has chosen for itself above all let music be and remain music and the great concern of german artists with expression and profundity of thought was according to christophe a good joke expression thought yes they introduced them into everything everything impartially they would have found thought in a skein of wool just as much, neither more nor less, as in a statue of Michelangelo. They played anything, anybody's music, with exactly the same energy. For most of them, the great thing in music, so he declared, was the volume of sound, just a musical noise. The pleasure of singing so potent in Germany was in some sort a pleasure of vocal gymnastics. It was just a matter of being inflated with air and then letting it go vigorously, powerfully, for a long time, together and rhythmically. And by way of compliment, he accorded a certain great singer a certificate of good health. He was not content with flaying the artists. He strode over the footlights and trounced the public for coming, gaping, to such performances. The public was staggered and did not know whether it ought to laugh or be angry. They had every right to cry out upon his injustice. They had taken care not to be mixed up in any artistic conflict. They stood aside prudently from any burning question. 
and to avoid making any mistake they applauded everything, and now Christophe declared that it was a crime to applaud. To applaud bad works? That would have been enough. But Christophe went further. He stormed at them for applauding great works. Humbugs, he said. You would have us believe that you have as much enthusiasm as that? Oh, come, spare yourselves the trouble. You only prove exactly the opposite of what you are trying to prove. Applaud if you like those works and passages, which in some measure deserve applause. Applaud those loud final movements which are written, as Mozart said, for long ears. Applaud as much as you like, then. Your braying is anticipated. It is part of the concert. But after the Misa Solemnis of Beethoven? Poor wretches! It is the last judgment. You have just seen the maddening Gloria pass like a storm over the ocean. You have seen the waterspout of an athletic and tremendous well, which stops, breaks, reaches up to the clouds, clinging by its two hands above the abyss, then plunging once more into space in full swing. The squall shrieks and whirls along, and when the hurricane is at its height there is a sudden modulation, a radiance of sound which cleaves the darkness of the sky and falls upon the livid sea like a patch of light. It is the end. The furious flight of the destroying angel stops short, its wings transfixed by these flashes of lightning. Around you all is buzzing and quivering. The eye gazes fixedly forward in stupor. The heart beats. Breathing stops. The limbs are paralyzed. And hardly has the last note sounded than already you are gay and merry. You shout. You laugh. You criticize. You applaud. But you have seen nothing, heard nothing, felt nothing, understood nothing, 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 absolutely nothing. The sufferings of an artist are a show to you. You think the tears of agony of a Beethoven are finely painted. You would cry encore to the crucifixion. A great soul struggles all its life, long in sorrow, to divert your idleness for an hour. So without knowing it, he confirmed Goethe's great words, but he had not yet attained his lofty serenity. The people make a sport of the sublime. If they could see it as it is, they would be unable to bear its aspect. If he had only stopped at that, but whirled along by his enthusiasm, he swept past the public and plunged like a cannonball into the sanctuary, the tabernacle, the inviolable refuge of mediocrity. Criticism he bombarded his colleagues. One of them had taken upon himself to attack the most gifted of living composers, the most advanced representative of the new school, Hassler, the writer of program symphonies, extravagant in truth, but full of genius. Christophe, who, as perhaps will be remembered, had been presented to him when he was a child, had always had a secret tenderness for him in his gratitude for the enthusiasm and emotion that he had had then. To see a stupid critic, whose ignorance he knew, instructing a man of that caliber, calling him to order, and reminding him of set principles, infuriated him. "'Order! Order!' he cried. "'You do not know any order but that of the police.' Genius is not to be dragged along the beaten track. It creates order and makes its will a law. After this arrogant declaration, he took the unlucky critic, considered all the idiocies he had written for some time past, 
and administered correction. All the critics felt the affront. Up to that time they had stood aside from the conflict. They did not care to risk a rebuff. They knew Christophe, they knew his efficiency, and they knew also that he was not long-suffering. Certain of them had discreetly expressed their regret that so gifted a composer should dabble in a profession not his own. Whatever might be their opinion, when they had one, and however hurt they might be by Christophe, they respected in him their own privilege of being able to criticize everything without being criticized themselves. But when they saw Christophe rudely break the tacit convention which bound them, they saw in him an enemy of public order. With one consent it seemed revolting to them that a very young man should take upon himself to show scant respect for the national glories, and they began a furious campaign against him. They did not write long articles or consecutive arguments. They were unwilling to venture upon such ground with an adversary better armed than themselves, although a journalist has the special faculty of being able to discuss without taking his adversary's arguments into consideration and even without having read them. But long experience had taught them that, as the reader of a paper always agrees with it, even to appear to argue was to weaken its credit with him. It was necessary to affirm, or better still, to deny. Negation is twice as powerful as affirmation. It is a direct consequence of the law of gravity. It is much easier to drop a stone than to throw it up. They adopted, therefore, a system of little notes, perfidious, ironic, injurious, which were repeated day by day in an easily accessible position with unwearying assiduity. They held the insolent Christophe up to ridicule, though they never mentioned him by name, but always transparently alluded to him. They twisted his words to make them look absurd. They told anecdotes about him, true for the most part, though the rest were a tissue of lies, nicely calculated to set him at loggerheads with the whole town, and worse still, with the court. Even his physical appearance, his features, his manner of dressing, were attacked and caricatured in a way that by dint of repetition came to be like him. End of section 43